0: What a perfect song to capture really last week's message. Thank you, Drew, as we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer when we looked at the words, Our Father. And this song expressed exactly what we were talking about, that prayer is about intimacy, knowing the love of God and growing into that love. And out of that, we find our identity as those who are beloved by God. So we continue and once again read... Uh, The Lord's Prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. I pick up in verse 5 of chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. How great are your prayers. We're looking at a great prayer. A prayer that captures the essence of what prayer is about, encompasses the grand themes of prayer, and is a model for us how to pray. Understanding the context helps us understand the prayer a little more. It appears in Matthew and in Luke. I read the Matthew passage. In Luke, it opens in this way. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So we see first that Jesus' prayer life was so rich and so vast that the disciples realized, Prayer is critical. If it's critical to the Son of God, how much more so is it critical to us? And so they say, teach us to pray. But notice that last phrase. As John taught his disciples. Now, why does Luke include this? I think it's captured in these words by a commentator, Joachim Jeremias probably the foremost New Testament scholar of the last century, he said this, that the unnamed disciples appealed to the example of John the Baptist is important for our understanding of the Lord's Prayer since we know that at the time of Jesus, individual groups, religious groups were marked by their own prayer customs and forms. This was true of the Pharisees, the Essenes, And as we perceive from this verse, the disciples of John as well. A particular custom in prayer expressed the particular relationship with God which bound the individuals together. What he's saying is, it was very common to look to your mentor to give a prayer that captured the essence of that. Leader's relationship with God. It brought them together in union with Jesus Christ. See, prayer is communion with God that brings us into union with Him. Last week we looked at how prayer was, is communion with God. He is our Father, Abba. It is personal. It is intimate. In July, we're going to look at how this prayer shows that we are brought into union with God. Today, we're going to see how it brings us into union with God's glory. In two weeks, we're going to see how it brings us into union with God's understanding of us. And the last week in July, into union with God about the way we should live. Prayer is communion with God that brings us into union with God. Those are great prayers. Our Father, may your Spirit use these words today to bring us into union with Jesus Christ, to help us feel the intimacy with you that that we sang about, and to capture your vision for this world, your purpose for this world, which we just sang about in your kingdom come. Lord, make these truths real to us today, that they might guide our lives. In Christ we pray. Amen. A few years ago when I was teaching a class on worship at uh, Westgate Christian Academy, I was using honoring an individual as an example. So I, I brought a trophy of my son Stephen, And I started to explain why he won that trophy, and I was praising him for his various accomplishments, likening it to what we should do in worship. It's like giving a trophy to God and praising God for who he is and his various works. And one boy interrupted and said, You're bragging, and Christians shouldn't brag. (laughs) Yes, I was bragging. I used the opportunity to, to really exalt my son Stephen because I love him. And I wanted people to value him the way I value him. You see, we glorify those we love. We want the world to know about them. And that's the way this prayer begins. We've talked about the intimacy with God. Now we move to union with God in his glory because if we love God we will want to glorify him and the three requests that we're looking at this morning are all different features of glorifying God hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven now the first request can be very confusing Uh, One little boy prayed it this way. Our Father who art in heaven, how do you know my name? (laughs) I've been just as confused until I, I started studying this word. What it means is to hold up God's name as holy, as separate, as above everything else. To give the honor to God and the glory to God that he is due. Tim Keller put it this way, to hollow means to treat it as sacred and ultimate, to make it the most important thing in our lives. Hollowed means to treat it as sacred and ultimate and to make it the most important in our lives. see, We were made to be worshipers. We all worship something. Don't know if you remember the old bumper sticker that said whoever dies with the most toys wins. It's an offhanded way of saying is life about materialism so your identity is really caught up your purpose is caught up in the toys you have, the enjoyment you get out of those toys. We make many different things ultimate in our lives. We all differ in what we make ultimate. Some of us make fame, our profession, our education, our religion, our bank accounts, so on and so on, that these are ultimate things that we find We think we'll find our joy in. We find our identity in. And we think it's where we'll find our purpose and meaning in life. What this prayer is saying is we are to make God ultimate. We gain our identity out of him. He rules our purpose. We make our lives about him. Hallowed be your name. Michael Reeves says that when we pray this prayer, quote, "We are carried by Christ into the middle of the Trinity." We looked at that a little bit last week. What it's saying is that the Triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit have, have a deep, intimate relationship among themselves. That when we pray, Father, we enter into that relationship with him. But we also begin to relate to Father, Son, Holy Spirit the same way they relate to each other. And this prayer shows that. John 17 gives us a window into this. Verse 13, Jesus is praying and he says, But now I'm coming to you, Father... These things I speak in the world, that they, that's my disciples and everyone who follows Jesus Christ, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. John 17, 23 says, I in them and you in me, I pray that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them, even even as you loved me. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, Father, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. Do you, do you see what he's praying? He's praying that we would be one just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. That we would have the joy that Jesus had. And what is the joy of Jesus? His relationship with the Father. That we would have the love That the Father and Son have for each other. That we'd have for them. That we'd have the glory in our relationship with him. You see, this prayer should bring us right into the middle of the Trinity. To experience the love of God. The glory of God. And have perfect joy. The joy that Christ had. And in return, while we're in there. We outwardly love and glorify God. And that's what's coming Across in this prayer. The Westminster Confession captured this perfectly when it talked about our purpose in life. It says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see that? Glorify God, enjoy Him. How do we enjoy Him? In the love relationship. Now, not everyone understands this the way it should be, should be understood. I remember sharing with a friend my purpose in life. My purpose in life is to glorify God. His response was, then you have a narcissistic God. One who seeks glory needs glory and that's why he makes us. And he's absolutely right if God is one who is seeking glory, who is jealous for glory, who who needs glory from us. But our God doesn't need that glory. God the Father receives more glory from God the Son and God the Spirit than we could ever give him. He's complete. He's full. He's overflowing. So why does he want us to glorify him? Because that's the way we are going to be fulfilled in life. Because we are meant to love and glorify God. And that's where we receive joy in life. Think of a child being disrespectful to a parent. And the parent says, chastises that child for for being disrespectful. You should be respecting me. Now, is the parent chastising the child because, oh, I need to be honored. I need to be respected. Oh, child, don't you know I am so worthy? No. The parent is saying, this is what's good for you. This is the way we live within the family. The father and mother are the authorities. We are the teachers. We are the ones who are guiding your life. And if your life is going to go right, you need to respect us. It's the same with God. For us to live the way life was meant to be, it's it's to respect God. Of you sports fans, what did you feel when Malcolm Butler intercepted that pass at the gold line a year and a half ago in the Super Bowl? I mean... If you're a fan of the Patriots, you were jumping up and down in circles and screaming like a little girl. Or you're jumping up and fist bumping and body bumping anyone, any other Patriot fan around you. You were in joy, you were in ecstasy, and the next day you were, you were talking about how the Patriots are a dynasty, how Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback there ever was, and Malcolm Butler made the greatest Super Bowl play ever. We are just basking in the glory of the Patriots. And you are feeling perfect, complete joy. That's what it means to glorify God. We get so caught up with God that He allows us to be a part of Himself. We are given the opportunity to see Him for who He is, to look at His works across the land, to praise His name, to enter into that joy of glorifying God. But our world is far from hollowing the name of God. Instead of, of searching out that God to know Him so that we could honor Him in the way He should be honored, we're reinventing god to be like we want him to be i made the mention of this last week an example was in my wife's classroom they were talking about uh, god's view of abortion and one of the students said oh i think god would be happy if i had an abortion because see god loves me and he wants me to be happy so that whatever makes me happy, he, he, he wants in my life. Now, this student didn't go search the scriptures to know God, to know what God said. They made it up. And it's, it's what so many of us are doing today. Instead of hollowing his name, we degrade it by, by bringing God down to our level where he serves us. And, and we see it in many of the, the common thoughts today. When we say all religions are the same, we diminish the true God. For the scripture shows us in Revelation the entire angelic realm and all the elders are around the throne of God and they say worthy to be praised is the Father and the Lamb. We are to worship Jesus Christ and God as one. Jesus said if you... Honor the Father, you will honor me. If you honor me, you are honoring the Father. He said, I am the way. Jesus very clear. The God of Scripture includes Jesus Christ in the praise and exaltation of him, and no other religion includes that. And so we are, are bringing down to our level God when we say all gods are the same. And when we make our own moral rules, we're falling into the same era of Isaiah's age when he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And what we've done is we've we've taken God's and we've put it in reverse, complete reverse. Of God's desires. And so we are we are lowering God. We we dishonour him when we say, I'm okay, you're okay, meaning that everybody's fine no matter what. And often people point to the the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery where Jesus says to the woman, is there anyone to stone you? Who condemns you? She said, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. And they leave off the last words of Jesus where he says, now go and sin no more. Jesus accepts us. He loves us as we are, but with a view to what we can be. Jesus' love for us is not... Simply unconditional love, it's counter-conditional love. He loves us as we are, even though we are counter to what he wants us to be. He loves us as we are, but with a view to helping us toward that transformation that makes us the people we are always intended to be. We fail to hollow God's name when we say everybody gets in. If God is loving, then he's going to allow everybody to get to heaven. When we say that, we are ignoring God's righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. In a way, we're saying, God... You should accept everybody and stop being yourself. You don't, you don't be holy. Don't be righteous. Don't be just, because everyone should get in. Hallowed be your name means to, to look at God for who he is and to lift him up, but we do it in the church as well. Every time we compromise scripture, Twist it to make it say what we want it to say. We are twisting who God is and his will. When we as a church fail to represent Christ as he truly is, and people look in and say, Christians are hypocrites, they're divisive, they're judgmental, they lack grace, Every time we make the Christian life about ourselves instead of God, we are not hollowing God's name. So this prayer says, Father, I pray in my life and that this world comes to know you for who you are so that they would give you the glory that's due your name. Lord, you deserve it, and we need that. then he prays, Thy kingdom come. What's interesting is Luke's version of the prayer does not include this phrase. It says, hallowed be your name. Excuse me, I've jumped forward. It does include this, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Uh, Commentator Kent Hughes captures uh, the questions around this phrase. Over the years, conflicting interpretations have been given to the meaning of your kingdom come. Some have argued this is a prayer for the second coming of Christ, and that's all. It has nothing to do with the present life. Others have seen your kingdom come as a call to social action and nothing else, a mandate to bring in the kingdom now through good works. And there are those who have seen your kingdom come as spiritually fulfilled in the salvation of souls, Actually, the correct interpretation and application contains elements of all these views. So there are those who view this phrase as this is the Lord's return. The kingdom of God comes when the Lord visits us again. And there is truth in that. We are praying to that end. And when you pray to that end, it is the most beautiful and dangerous prayer that you can make. It's beautiful because it is the expression of every heart. Our world is broken. Every newscast seems to bring another aspect of the brokenness in our world, the slaughtering of police officers, the racism in the country, the terrorism, the human trafficking. And then there's the bitterness in our own relationships the hurts, the pain. Our world is broken, and when Jesus returns, he fixes everything that is broken. He brings us back to the paradise that our hearts long for, the paradise for which we were meant to live. That's beautiful. But it's dangerous as well, because... When the Lord returns, he comes with judgment. You see, there's only two ways to change the problems of this world. One is to overcome them, the other is to change hearts. So we think of war. How are we going to do away with war? If we're, one, we overcome our enemies in victory, or we change people's hearts to see war as the evil it is. There's two ways to stop a thief. One is to overcome him and place him in prison. The other is to work with him and transform his heart. There's two ways to change an abuser. One is to overcome him and place him in prison, or to change his heart. Jesus wants to change our hearts and change this world. But we've been at it for a few millennia, and it isn't happening. Jesus is giving us more time. We know the outcome is the world's not going to accept him. If hearts aren't changed, then the Lord has to bring justice. It's the only way he can make the world right. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. And yes, as an aspect of the kingdom of God is when hearts are changed and they work against injustices. When hearts are changed and they share the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring peace and hope to those around them. This is, Jesus said, the kingdom is among you. It's, it's now here. And so the Lord gives us the new covenant, writes the law in our hearts, gives us the Holy Spirit so we can be transformed and be instruments of God in helping to transform the world, to to meet right where the curse is harming, we come to heal. That's what Jesus did. He, He healed those who were sick. He cast out the demons. He brought goodness and truth, forgiveness. That's what God wants to do through us. Work for social justice. Ken Hughes captures this again. He says, Virtually all the great social reforms in history had their roots in kingdom living. The abolition of slavery came through the kingdom living of such Christians as William Wilberforce. Prison reform came from the kingdom living of Elizabeth Frye. Great advances in compassion and medical care came through Florence Nightingale. He's called us to enter into the world to meet the hurts and the pains of this world. Yes, that is part of the prayer for the kingdom of God. And yes, a part of the prayer for the kingdom of God is the work that God does in individual lives. many ways, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, You enter into a kingdom in your relationship with him. It's almost like you have this protective level against the hurts and the pains of the world because we are given hope. We're given an eternal perspective. We're given peace of the spirit. We're given a rest because we trust in the sovereign God who is all-wise and all-loving. And so the pain of the world impacts us in a very different way than it does the rest of the world. We have hope and peace in the midst of the storms of life around us. And also, God is doing a work in our lives. He's reversing the curse. See, the curse brought a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with others, and a broken relationship with ourselves. But when we come to Jesus Christ, that relationship with God is restored. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can think outward of others and our relationship with each other is restored. The church of Jesus Christ is built and our relationship with ourselves is made whole again because we need not be ashamed for Christ has taken the guilt of our sin. We need not live in denial about our sin because Christ has dealt with our sin. And so the kingdom of God is is in us as well. So we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luke does not include this phrase in his prayer. Thy kingdom come excuse me, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, but he does not pray, your will be done. That's not because, who cares if God's will is done? It's because it's included in the phrase, your kingdom come. See, when God's kingdom is here, Christ returns, God's will is going to be done on earth. The kingdom workers for God, they want God's will done in their lives. And when we personally are living in that kingdom with God, we are desirous of God's will being done. Imagine this world if everyone actually did God's will. What's God's will? It isn't just commands. It's two commands. Love God with your entire being. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we obey those truths, we're going to be doing God's will. We can't simply do the acts of obedience. Without the heart of obedience because Christ wants that first and foremost. So doing God's will means allowing God to transform the inside of us so that we welcome and see God's commands as expressions of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. It means responding to God's call. God has called us to to make disciples in this world, to be kingdom workers, to do his will is to do those works. And to do God's will is to be willing to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice to follow God and help others see God, understand the gospel. When we pray these words, we can't help but think of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup of judgment pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God's will is done when we have that same heart, no matter the cost. I want God's will to be supreme. Prayer is communion with God that brings us into union with God. The first three requests are about union with God's glory, our desire for him to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, his will to be done. Great prayers Express the heart of Jesus Christ. Great prayers pray the same words Jesus Christ would pray. Mark Twain wrote The Prince and the Pauper. And if you know the story at all, there's a prince and a pauper who look identical. The pauper longs to live like the prince. The prince is tired of living like a prince, and he longs to, live like the, to have some freedom like the pauper. And so they meet, they become friends, and they decide they're going to trade places. And so they each have their adventures, but while they're apart, the king dies, and now they need to crown the prince king. The pauper doesn't want that because he doesn't have a clue how to rule the country. The prince realizes the pauper doesn't have a clue how to run the country, so he rushes back. Now there's, there's a cabinet member who has figured it out, and he realizes if the pauper becomes king, he can control him. And so he's made this demand that if this, the, the real prince who comes back, he says, you're not the real prince until you can show us where the great seal is. That seal, that, that, stamps the king's business. He can't find it. And so the pauper says, well, what does it look like? And as they describe it, the pauper remembers where they put it. And so he gives clues to the prince of where it is. It's in a suit of armor. They go find it. The prince now is confirmed as king because he was able to produce the royal seal. But... They then ask the pauper, he said, "Well, if, if you knew where this was all along, why didn't you produce it when we needed it? And he said, I, I didn't know what it was. And he said, what, what do you think it was? He said, well, I used it to crack nuts. <laughs> Are our prayers great? Are we cracking nuts with our prayers? Or do we see, see prayer... Is the seal of God's work, that we are praying kingdom prayers, great prayers. Our Father, be our guide. Do teach us to pray. Bring us into intimacy with you, closeness. May we understand fully what it means to say, Abba, Father, when we pray. And Lord, bring our hearts and our lives into union with you that we would use those prayers to stamp out your glory. Amen.